If you look at the way that I'm built, my body type does not scream out basketball player. <laughs> and yet growing up, basketball was my favorite sport. I was okay, not great, but okay. I was a decent point guard, but I lived for basketball. I loved basketball. I had a hoop up over my garage, and I would shoot hoops for hours every day after school. In fact, I even, I even put a spotlight into the driveway so I could shoot after dark, and I probably drove the neighbors nuts with the sound of dribbling and shooting until late in the evening. And I fulfilled that passion for basketball as quickly as I could by getting on school teams. I started playing on a team in our grade school when I was in fourth grade. I continued playing on teams through junior high school and into the start of my high school years until my sophomore year when everything changed. So that year began and I made the team and I was the starting point guard and the season was underway and then our family moved 200 miles to a new community. It was too late to join the team at my new high school, so I had to sit out for the year. And so I wasn't involved in the rigors of daily practice. I missed out on the intense competition of the games. And because of that, my skills didn't progress rapidly. I couldn't keep up. And when tryouts came the following year and I tried to make the team, I was no longer good enough. I didn't get in. And I was devastated. This is my love. This is my dream, and I no longer had it. And I went through a season where I was in a real fog and literally did not know what to do with myself. Fortunately, my parents encouraged me to pursue some new things, to find some new interests. So to stay involved with sports, I took up tennis. Then I even looked farther afield, and I got interested in music and in drama. I actually learned some new things about myself because of what had happened. I found some new direction in my life. Now, I wasn't a believer at that time, but looking back, I am absolutely convinced that God's hand was involved. He was showing me that when our plans come crashing down, it's not the end. He'll give us new direction. And interestingly enough, it was through these new interests that God brought me into contact with followers of Jesus who helped lead me to faith. I don't think that was a coincidence. Because of that experience and others I've had in my life, I'm convinced that when we are devastated because our plans have not come to fruition, those are moments when God loves to step into our lives and give us the direction that we need. And we find a prime example of this during the very first Christmas. A man named Joseph has his plans destroyed when he learns that his fiancée is pregnant and he's not the father. That news is devastating to Joseph. And yet that's the precise moment when God shows up. I'd like us to listen to this story that's recorded for us in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And as we listen, let's watch the story unfold on the screen. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. As we just heard when this story begins, Mary is pledged or betrothed to Joseph. And that word has a special meaning in the first century world of the Middle East because couples became married at that time in three distinct phases. Phase one was the engagement, which in most cases was arranged by the parents. And then phase two took place when the man had established the means to earn a living to support a family, and then he would make a formal proposal of marriage. If the woman accepted, then at that point, they were considered betrothed or pledged. And they were not yet married. They did not yet live together. Yet their relationship was legally binding and only could be dissolved through divorce. And this pledge period lasted for a full year. And at the end of that time, the couple finally could experience phase three, the wedding. Joseph and Mary are in phase two. They are formally pledged to one another, but not yet married. And they are in this one-year waiting period when Mary becomes pregnant. Let's take a closer look at this Bible passage starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged. There's that word. She's pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. That's a key phrase in understanding this passage. He was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Mary knows that what is taking place within her body is the result of a spiritual miracle because she had a visit from an angel who explained things to her. Joseph, however, does not yet have the big picture. And however he heard about this, whatever Mary said to him, it doesn't add up. All he knows is that she's pregnant and he's not responsible. And the logical explanation that Mary's been unfaithful would cut him to the soul. This news would create a tangled emotional and relational and spiritual dilemma because, because the reality of her pregnancy raises all sorts of questions. Questions like, does Mary even love him? Questions like, if she didn't want to be with him, then why did she pledge herself to him? And perhaps for Joseph, one of the most important questions, who, who, who is this other man? I think he also would have some questions for God. Like, how could this happen? And what do I 
do now. Joseph is a good man, a godly man, a faithful man. He's a man who follows the rules, and he thought Mary was the same kind of person. Stuff like this isn't supposed to happen to people like them. And so this news about Mary's pregnancy would cause Joseph to be devastated because all of his plans have come crashing down around him. And our Bible passage here is very condensed. It doesn't lay out all the nuances and all the details. And I find myself wondering, how would Joseph feel in that moment? When I was a kid, I would run around barefoot in the summer a lot. And because of that, it seems like I would regularly stub my big toe. And I never seemed to learn from that experience and actually go and put shoes on. (laughs) But I would stub my toe and the toe would bleed and it would swell up and I would walk around with a limp for a couple of weeks. I think many of you know what that is like. And I think a stubbed toe is a great metaphor for the wounds of life that we often experience. And I think it applies to Joseph. Emotionally, he's bleeding. He's aching. He's limping. And he wants to press on. But initially, he doesn't know what to do. Where do you turn for answers when you are emotionally distraught and your plans have fallen apart? Where do you, where do you, how do you clear away the fog of confusion in a moment like that and discover new direction? Joseph only knows one place to go. And that's to turn to the Jewish law. The Jewish law, which is a combination of the wisdom of the scriptures along with the teaching and the traditions of the rabbis. And the law, as practiced at that time, gives him only one viable option, divorce. Yet divorce is not a clean solution. It creates dilemmas. On the one hand, a highly public divorce might be somewhat satisfying to Joseph. It would be a way to get get some, some vengeance, so to speak, on Mary hurting her for the hurt that he believes that, that she has put on him because of what he perceives to be her, her betrayal. And furthermore, his own reputation is at stake, and the best way he can protect himself is to publicly denounce her. And that's how some Jewish men in that day would apply the law. On the other hand, Joseph doesn't want to be harsh. He seems to care for Mary, and he's got no desire to bring shame on her. So he prefers to handle the divorce in a low-key manner, even if that choice is not the best one for him personally. And as I ponder this, it seems to me that Joseph is trying in his own way to manage the tension between God's law and God's grace. And it's not easy. And he thinks he's figured out the right answer. And he knows that this decision will have huge ramifications for himself and for Mary. Therefore, he does not rush. He takes time to think it over. Look what happens next, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I think that the first few words of verse 20 
are perhaps the most important part of this entire story. But after he had considered this, think about how we behave when we're hurt or when we're angry. We often have a desire to just get things over with, so we make hasty decisions, but haste can often make us act in ways that we later regret. Joseph's example of being willing to take time to deliberate has so much to teach us because we live in an age of immediate responses. We have the luxury of email and texts and tweets and instant messages and social media posts. And these tools are so easy to use that we fire off comments quickly, often without pausing for thought and often without taking time to consider how others might be impacted by our comments. And I wish we all could just learn to slow down and take time to think before we communicate. You see, I believe that if we get an angry email, the worst thing we can do is fire one back. If we read something on Facebook that gets us all stirred up, the worst thing we can do is respond immediately with an argumentative post. Instead, like Joseph, we need to take time to consider. We must think about what to say and how to say it. And we need to think about what not to say as well. And I'm absolutely convinced that in many cases, the best response to another human being is not to respond electronically. When there's something going on, pick up the phone and have a conversation. Or better yet, get together over lunch or coffee and talk face to face. Joseph's example reminds us not to rush and react. And here's what's so profound. Because Joseph takes time to consider, then he's able to hear from God. You see, when we act in haste, we often get ahead of God. We become so consumed with what we think and we feel and acting that out that we can't hear God's voice. If we're rushing rather than pondering, we don't make space to hear God's voice. And as we tear busily around, spewing out our opinions and make rapid decisions, I wonder if sometimes God just shakes his head at us. I wonder if sometimes he says, you know, Bruce, I'd love to give you some advice, but it's clear that you're not interested in hearing from me because you're just too busy. I believe that when we are down, when we're despondent, when we're devastated, when we're struggling with a dilemma. That's the moment God loves to step into our lives. He wants to step in so we can experience his peace and his presence and his guidance. And to make that happen, Joseph's great and lasting example to us is to take time to consider, to ponder, to give God room to act and to give ourselves room to hear. And so because Joseph is deliberating, then God speaks and Joseph is able to hear him. In fact, he gets to experience God in a unique way suited to his very unique situation. While he is sleeping, he has this amazingly unusual dream. Now, we've all had strange dreams, 
And sometimes they're meaningful, but, but often they're just nonsense. Oliver Holmes had a very strange dream. He was a physician at a time when ether had just been discovered to be an effective anesthetic. And since this was new, he wanted to know what his patients might experience. So he had a dose of ether administered to himself. Now you need to know that ether has a very strong odor, a very noticeable smell. So Dr. Holmes was put under, and as he slipped into unconsciousness, he had this incredible dream. He dreamed that he had been given the key to understanding the mysteries of the universe. And when he woke up, he couldn't remember it. (laughs) And he said to himself, for the good of mankind, I have to capture that message so everyone can understand the deep meaning of life. So he tried again. This time he parked a stenographer by his bedside to record anything that he might say. So once again, this dose of smelly ether is administered. Once again, he has this flash of insight and he manages to mumble some words which the stenographer faithfully records. And when he wakes up, he turns to her eagerly and he said, what is the secret of the universe? She said, according to you, it's this. The whole universe stinks. So much for life-changing insights, right? (laughs) Clearly, that's not the kind of dream that Joseph has because his dream is not chemically induced, (laughs) nor is it a fantasy. It's a dream that goes far beyond his knowledge and his experience. First of all, he encounters an angel of the Lord, which is a very special kind of angel in Scripture. The angel of the Lord represents the presence of God in a unique way. And secondly, the angel speaks directly to Joseph's dilemma, but not necessarily in a way that he would prefer. You see, if I were in Joseph's shoes and an angel showed up, here's what I'd want the angel to say. Joseph, don't worry, it's all been a big mistake. It's a misunderstanding. Mary's not been unfaithful. She's not really pregnant. And when you wake up, you can just get back to life as you planned it and allow your particular dreams to unfold the way you envision. That's obviously not what he hears. He hears some amazing things. He learns that God himself has made Mary pregnant. And Mary's child is being sent by God to rescue people from themselves. And Joseph has been selected to serve as the father of the Messiah, the savior of mankind. It's a dream that's so bizarre, he couldn't make it up. And he wouldn't want to make it up. Because the result of the angel's words are that Joseph faces a hard choice. He needs to fulfill his pledge to Mary and follow through and become her husband despite the fact that he's not the biological father of the child that she's carrying. And in his world, that would be virtually unthinkable. Become father of a son that's not his own? Become become the father of a boy with no earthly father? The Jewish law doesn't have much guidance about a situation like that. Joseph is being invited to move beyond the boundaries of the Jewish law. 
trust what God says. And that's not an easy thing to do. See, what would you and I do in a situation like that? When we're faced with a dilemma, most of us fall back on our default behavior. And as we've seen, Joseph's instincts always are to follow the law. This means that he could ignore the angel, he could divorce Mary, and no one ever would question him because no one ever would know about the dream. For Joseph, divorcing Mary is the easiest decision. It's the most culturally acceptable decision to make. And yet that's not the path he chooses. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph Joseph makes a profound decision. He trusts the angel's message. And this means he did not follow his own plan. He followed God's plan. And because of that, he goes beyond what will be personally comfortable. He goes beyond what is socially acceptable. He goes beyond the Jewish law that has served as his faithful guide. And as he does this, he demonstrates something powerful. His ultimate obedience is not to the law, but to God. And therefore, when he wakes up, he is able to act decisively. He takes this huge leap of faith, and he acts in a way that makes no sense in his world. And because of faith, he becomes Mary's husband, and ultimately the father of Jesus Now, I don't think Joseph fully realizes all the implications of what the angel said. Yet he understands enough to grasp his part in God's plan to rescue the world. As a result, he not only honors his pledge to Mary and becomes her husband, he also chooses not to physically consummate their marriage until after Jesus is born. He practices some self-control. He withholds his own physical desires for months and is not intimate with his wife. Why does he do that? It's because if Mary and Joseph come together physically after their wedding day, people can claim that the story of the virgin birth is false. It's a fairy tale. And they can say, Joseph, you're really the biological father of that kid, Jesus. Joseph wants there to be no doubt that the conception of Jesus is a miracle orchestrated by God. Since Mary is a virgin when Jesus is born, then Joseph truthfully can tell people that his son is God's son. And all of this is possible because Joseph does not fall apart when he receives Mary's devastating news. He does not collapse under the weight of his dilemma. Therefore, he's able to experience the presence of God and the guidance of God. He makes himself available to hear from God. And when God speaks, then he acts decisively. He acts decisively because he trusts the God who, can, who he cannot see. He trusts that this God who he cannot see will guide him through the fog and the uncertainty of his dilemma. 
is God's faithful. And he meets us in moments of devastation and chaos and shows us what to do. Some of you I know have heard this story about what a U.S. soldier observed during the Persian Gulf War in the 1990s. In one particular battle, the fighting had tragically moved into a city and it was now raging through a residential neighborhood. One U.S. platoon had taken shelter behind a house and that house was hit by incoming missile fire. And as the walls began to collapse, this American soldier saw a father come rushing out of the house. And he had his hand gripped tightly on the arm of his son, who looked to be about 10 years old. Father comes out, he sees a shell hole, and he runs toward it as fast as he can, thinking if we can get in the shell hole, we can be protected and safe. And the yard's filled with smoke, and there's the sound of bullets and shells whizzing everywhere. And the father is making for that shell hole, and right as he gets to the edge and starts to dive in, his son, who is totally, totally scared to death, manages to wiggle out of his father's grip. And he's there blinded by the smoke. In the midst of his fear, he's disoriented, he's confused and scared to death. And he can't see the shell hole. He can't see his father. And the father's down in the hole and starts bellowing, over here, come over here and jump down. The son says, I can't see you, dad. Dad says, but I can see you. Jump. And the son runs to the sound of his father's voice. And he leaps to safety in his father's arms. I think that is a great picture of our God. We can't always see the heavenly father, but he sees us. And we don't always know which way to jump, but God knows the right direction for each of us. We just need to listen for his voice and trust what he says. This story, I believe, has so much to say to us. For many of us, it's familiar. Maybe it's become cliched or stale. I hope we can see it in a new light today. Because when we're in a fog, and we often are in a fog in life, and it might be a fog of fear or a fog of confusion or a fog of despair, it's in those moments that our God loves to step in. He wants us to experience his presence and his care and his guidance just like Joseph did. Yet like Joseph, we must be willing to take that leap of faith and trust God. We need to trust so we can go beyond what's personally comfortable. We need to trust so we can go beyond what is culturally comfortable. When we are devastated and our plans have come crashing down, we just need to listen and run to the Father's voice. He is waiting. And there always is safety and refuge in the arms of the Heavenly Father.